The Old Testament is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a singular narrative where every story and character points beyond itself to one who is greater. Today we are looking at how Jesus is the true and better Samson from Judges 16, 28 to 30. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Uh, good morning. We are going to be in uh, what, what uh, some call the most uplifting book of the Bible, which is the book of Judges. And it'll be on the screen. I'm going to blaze through it narratively as well. Um, we'll be in chapters 13 through 16. And uh, this, one of my professors at Dallas Seminary said this about the book of Judges. Um, could, could also describe my approach to sports often. It's this. Uh, this book is quite negative. It begins bleakly continues darkly, and ends horribly. <laughs> As I say a lot about the Old Testament, it's always darkest before it gets a little bit darker. This is the book of Judges. This, this, is, this is the book of Judges. And um, we in the True and Better series are working through different people in the Old Testament. This morning it's about Samson. And uh, I'd imagine for most of you, you've forgotten um, way more than anything you, you remember this morning about Samson besides um, maybe his hair. He was very strong in some ways. All of that is true. Uh, but there's a, lot, there's a lot more to it than that. And the big hope that I have this morning is that when you leave today in about 38 minutes, uh, give or take, is that you feel like, uh, you feel, I'm so glad that Samson is not our savior and that Jesus is. So, to whatever effect I can help with that, great. But I am sure the Holy Spirit will move us to the end there. The book of Judges is, it's a, uh, obviously the name of the book, but outside of Deborah a bit, the judges aren't actually judicial judges in courtrooms. So an easy misnomer for the English translation. They're, they're more, uh, the word has another connotation, which is more deliverer, that they are deliver, deliverers for God's people. Um, and they kind of functioned as mayors and prophets and military leaders all rolled into one person. Uh, this is before the time of the kings. And the whole point of the judges is that things get so bad, they need a king. They need someone. And so judges are raised up by the Lord to help the people deal with the repercussions for their sin, which is exile or is oppression by different groups of people. And the book of Judges is filled with um, multiple groups of people uh, because of the people of Israel's sin that come in, um, oppress them, and then God raises up a judge, a deliverer, a William Wallace kind of type figure more or less uh, to help them and save them. And yet it doesn't ever really help them or save them. Uh, and the one this morning is one of the more infamous ones, and his name is Samson. And here's how his birth is told in Judges chapter 13. There was a certain man of Zorah in the tribe of the Danites 
whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you're barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and dedicated to God. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, there, there, are, not, there are hardly any uh, birth infancy narratives in uh, the Bible, much less the Old Testament. Obviously, the most famous one is, is uh, the birth of Jesus. And, and this birth is similar to that birth, is it not? Especially in Luke's gospel. There's some crossover here, a couple of things. An angel appears to a woman who's without a child. She's barren in this example versus Mary, uh, but she has no child. And the angel says to her, you will have a son. A son is coming to you, unexpected. And then the angel says, be careful what you eat and what you drink for the next nine months because this son is not just any ordinary son. He's gonna be a Nazarite, which means that, that his life is gonna be consecrated and dedicated to serving Yahweh, to being someone who's raised up for Yahweh in, in some way, not knowing probably at this time whether he's gonna be a judge or whatever he's gonna, his role is gonna be, but there's something about this son who's to be born that's gonna be different. So the instructions to mom particularly are also very strict. And a Nazarite is, is someone, some people think John the Baptist was a Nazarite, who makes vows that are this level of consecration and holiness to the Lord where you are set apart from other people. And at the time of the judges, uh, there are three main vows that a Nazarite uh, would take, that, that he couldn't drink alcohol, uh, couldn't touch dead bodies, and couldn't cut his hair. Those were the three. That set you, sets you apart, those three those three vows. And the last part of this birth of this son is that he will save Israel from their oppression. And so you're reading this, and if you're reading through the Old Testament, you're hearing this story, you know the people of Israel need someone to save them, need someone to help them. And you're, and you're reading through this, you're thinking, this is stacking up with some pretty good ingredients here. This, this is just the level of detail of the birth makes it seem like this is a different type of son. Could this be the deliverer, like the deliverer, the one to truly help us from the hand of the Philistines? And so I think uh, rarely has there been a man who was born with more promise or more potential, more expectation than Samson. And rarely has there been a man who squandered it more than him. He's a tragic figure, a sad figure. But at the beginning, his life was consecrated to God, and he grew up with the Spirit of God um, in his life. The end of chapter 13 ends this way. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manadam between Zorah and Eshtel. So you have this kind of almost these haunting last two verses of Judges that, that seem maybe somewhat similar to the end of Genesis chapter 2. Uh, where uh, the text says that the, a man knew his wife, that they were, they were naked and they had no shame before the dun-dun-dun of Genesis chapter 3. It's, a, it's the same thing here where there's so much potential and there's, there's so much promise and so much expectation and then it all comes crashing down in the first verse of chapter 14. It'll be here on the screen. <clears throat> Samson went down to Timnah, so he's grown up obviously, and at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. 
Now get her for me as a wife. Yikes. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Samson is a man who goes blind far before he loses his eyesight. And what sin does, sin blinds you and then it binds you. And the genesis of every single sin is desire. I want what is right in my own eyes. And if I can have that, I'll be okay. And it's true for Adam and Eve, desiring to make them wise, they took of the fruit and ate it. Here, here it is. You can see mom and dad panic, as sometimes mom and dads do with people that their kids date. Samson's parents are no different. They, he, he says, I, I've seen a woman and I want her as my wife. And mom and dad are like, well, uh, okay, yikes. What do we do? How do we, how do we respond? Um, what about, um, not her, but what about Jessica? She's great. She's one of us. She's normal. She's not a Philistine. Or, or like, okay, not Jessica. Cynthia, I don't, so anyone, anyone among whom these people, and Samson is like, no, I want, I, this is who I want. Go get her for me. For she is right in my, in my eyes. And this will be a struggle and a sin that, that plagues Samson throughout his whole life. Impulse and lust, not just towards women, but towards anything that he desires. Using his strength that God gives him in moments for his own sake and not for the sake of being the deliverer that his people need. Well, we're, we're going to fly in the next section because I'm just gonna cover the narrative without going verse by verse because there's three huge chunks of scripture. And so for, for those, the first service that has Spanish translation, they always get upset at me because I talk so very fast like I'm doing now. And like, you have to slow down. It's like, I've got bad news. I'm gonna talk very fast right now as we get through this part of the book of Judges, okay? Because there's just so much here and I hope some of the dramatic effect is that there's so much here and you see how insane Samson is and how crazy this story is. Okay, so he sees a woman he wants to marry. He walks uh, down to where they're gonna get married, begins this journey of where they're gonna get married. And as the narrative goes on, uh, the, it says that as he's, as he's going on the way to this wedding kind of celebration, this week-long uh, betrothal, in route to that, um, he gets attacked by a lion. The Spirit of God rushes on him with physical strength, and he kills a lion with his bare hands. It's like, wow, okay, that a left turn in the narrative, but he kills a lion, lion's dead, he keeps moving on. A few days later, Samson comes back to see the carcass of the lion, you know, which if I could lie with my bare hands, I would come back and look at it. I'd be like, I did that. I did that with my bare hands. I killed that lion. Now it's a bunch of bones. And I, look at me, I did that. And so Samson and I share a lot of similarity. So <laughs> we, uh, and it's just like, oh, we'll do that. But a few days later, their bees have made a nest in uh, the bones and their, their honey's coming out of it. And so he, he goes down, he grabs the honey out of the dead lion and he eats it and he gives some to his, to his parents, which is also like very hungry. I guess he was hungry. He wanted the sweetness of honey, right? Claiming his kill. Also what happened is he began uh, to go from a life of consecration to a life of compromise because he touches a dead body. Why? Because he wanted honey. 
right? And the road from a life of consecration to a life of collapse begins with small moments of compromise along the way where you say, how could this be wrong? How, how, what, what is, how, no one is getting hurt by me eating just the honey out of this lion. Well, you've, you've, you've disobeyed the commitment that was, that was both made from God to you and also you to God. And the downward slope, it just continues and continues and continues. When you live your life doing what is right in your own eyes, everything at the end begins to seem right in your own eyes. And you're blind. Which is why Jesus says, in love, you better gouge out your eye. Better that than to not. So he's disobeyed this. He goes and marries a Philistine woman. They have a, a week-long party uh, where they're in the engagement. The marriage is, is, is different from how we do it now, but there's this week-long celebration. Apparently, back in the day, they told riddles to each other. And so Samson has made this riddle to, to about the 30 men that have come to the party. And he's like, hey, if you can guess this riddle... I'm gonna give you 30 pieces of my clothing, 30 sheets of linen, but if you can't guess the riddle, I'm taking all of that from you guys. So he wants all of their stuff. So he gives them a riddle. Of course, it's actually about the lion, the honey, all of that. They have no idea what it's about, but Samson's wife, they basically break her down. She breaks him down. He tells her, she tells them, and then they come back to Samson like, we know what the riddle means. Uh, and then Samson, uh, not the most man in control of his feelings, just loses his mind and goes and kills, uh, goes on a journey to kill all of um, these guys who have uh, done this to him, done this to his wife. So they, they all um, die. And while he's on this journey trying to get vengeance for the riddle being uh, found out, uh, his father-in-law gives away his wife to someone else. Because he thinks, why would you want to be with this person? Uh, she's not trustworthy, whatever it may, may be. And so I, I gave her to someone else, but not just anyone else. The text says that, that he gave her to Samson's best man. It's like, if you, these people would be on Jerry Springer at 11 a.m. <laughs> and you'd be like, this is insane. If there's any illusion you have about the Bible being the story of people put together who are do, doing good things for God, let this put it to rest. That's not what the Bible's about. The Bible's, this is obviously an extreme example. I don't mean to make light of it. There are other people that get it more right than Samson does. But in the, the day, we all get it wrong compared to what we're supposed to. And Samson just loses his mind. And so then he comes back and he's like, okay, I, I, I've done all that. I, I've acted out of my rage. I've killed all them. I've come back. I'm ready to complete the ceremony with my wife and father-in-law. Dad of the bride is like, oh, I didn't think you'd want her anymore. I gave her to your best man. What about her younger sister? You, you could marry her. It's like, imagine the family dynamics around the dinner table there. It's like, how did you guys meet? How did you meet? Well, you know what? Uh, let, let them leave the room. Then we'll tell you how we met because it's kind of weird right? Just absolute family brokenness, family dysfunction, right? If you, we all have it, turn it up to 10 right here for this family. It, it is just crazy. But Samson still is angry uh, at the Philistines. Um, and this is where anger is just, again, controlling so much of him. He wants to destroy them. And so th this, is, <laughs> this is what our, our boy does. He uh, gets uh, 300 foxes, he ties uh, 150 pairs together, uh, tail to tail of these foxes. He sets their tails on fire and then unleashes them in the olive fields and the grain fields of the Philistines to burn them all to the ground. Exactly, yeah. I, just like, 
I mean, I, in my life, I have wanted to get revenge in moments. I will be honest. There have been some things where I've been like, you know what? I have never thought, let me spend the time to grab 150 pairs of foxes, tie up their tails, light them on fire, and then send them through a field to destroy my enemies, knowing that that means they're gonna come at me even harder. And yet, this is this, the cycle of violence and retribution that happens when you are blind, when you can't see. An eye for an eye, just, just and that's what happens. And so the fields get burned to the ground. And so it's just like a metaphor for Samson's life. His life is burning to the ground. But here we have it going sideways. So then the Philistines come and search for Samson. Samson's gone back to be with his people, the people of Judah, thinking it might be security for him, but his own people give him up. Why? Because he has no spiritual authority with them. Who'd want to follow this man? And so they, they give him up. And so 3,000 uh, of the men of Israel tie him up. They bring him back to the Philistines. And then a herd of giraffes arrive and kill all these guys. That's not true. That doesn't happen. <laughs> I saw some of your faces. You were like, what is happening now at fellowship? <laughs> but honestly, if that was in the Bible at this stage, I'd be like, absolutely it happened. Let's throw it all in. I mean, no, nothing seems crazy right now. This story is, has so lost its mind that everything seems okay. So all of these guys, they, he, Samson breaks free of the bonds that the uh, Israelites put him on and then the spirit rushes on Samson again and he gets the jawbone of a donkey and he kills a thousand Philistines and he piles their bodies up and then he gets so thirsty from that the one time he then cries out to God again it's because he's thirsty from killing all these people he says God give me something to drink why will you not give me water I am I've done all this for you even though he's done none of it for God he's done all of it for himself and the one time he cries out to God again, it's just like, hey, I, I'm thirsty, uh, give me water. And if I'm reading the Old Testament, I'm thinking, this is the end for Samson. It's over right now. And what does God do? He, he opens up the earth and he gives Samson water that revives his soul. Just mercy in the midst of the madness is God still committed to his purposes and his plan and giving mercy to a man who does not deserve it. And yet God says, I'll give you water to drink because you're thirsty. Hmm. It continues. He then goes, Judges 16, he goes to Gaza to be with a prostitute and the Gazites surround his house. So this is ridiculous on so many levels. And so they want to attack him. They're surrounding the house. And then the text says, but he took, I quote, he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and two posts and pulled them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Which I'm like, if he has the gates on him, why could they still not? But it's, don't go down that path. It doesn't, it's like, how is this happening? And why was his reaction to take the gates of the city up and just on the hill? But that, it's just blind to blind to blind to I can do this. I'm in control. I, I, my strength will save me. They can't, they can't stop me. And then he meets Delilah, and she begins to play him love ballads on B97.5 to seduce him. <laughs> you know, of all the things that, didn't, that got edited out of the sermon, I could not let that happen. I could not let that be edited out. So you're welcome. You're welcome for that depth. And uh, though I wonder if her voice sounded similar, because she just seduces him. And you, you would think after like, I mean, it's, it's three times before he finally tells her the truth. You, you would think after the second or third time when all the Philistines rush in after he's told her how he would lose his strength by his hair being cut, 
that he'd be like, I think you're an unhealthy person. I think this is not a healthy relationship. And yet when you are blind, you cannot see things for what they are. And if you think, I would never, maybe literally you would never be in this situation, I hope not, but all of us in different ways have been right here where we wake up one day and we say, how on earth did I say yes to that? How on earth did I give into that? How on earth did I get here? And so the Philistines, they rush him, his hair is shaved, um, naked in, in, in kind of a deep sense. His strength, God leaves him, his strength is gone. And then this tragic verse near the end of Genesis 16, the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison. <sighs> sin blinds you and sin binds you. Samson had these moments of physical strength where the Spirit of God rushes on him to, to break ropes and to kill lions and to kill people. But Samson could never translate any of that into any spiritual strength, into any spiritual authority. In, like, his arms may have been strong. Who knows what he actually looked like? We don't actually know. But in moments, he was very strong, but never in his heart, never in control always living a reactive life because he did what was right in his own eyes. And this is the effect of it. In the end, it leads towards, in a sense, death. As I said, from a life of consecration to compromise to a life of catastrophe. This is what sin does. This is how it festers and kills. The cycle of sin looks like this. It'll be on the screen. Now, I know it's more complicated than this. I know it's more nuanced than this. It's a whole but just in a way that may be somewhat, I hope, helpful. Sin is more than just making choices. Sin always springs from desires that have gone wrong. And there's space in your life where you have the ability to desire these things or they seem desirable to you. It always begins with, with desire. And that gives way to intention. You think of Samson, I desire this woman, or Eve in the garden, I desire this fruit. And then the next thought is, I will eat it. I will get her. I will do this. I will make this choice. It, it can be instantaneous when desire moves to intention, but it always moves that way. Desire to intention, and then, and then to an action. You, you do the thing, I do the thing. Whatever it is. That is outside of what God's boundaries are for us. The desire happened, the intention happened, and we couldn't come back from the intention, and so the action happened. And if the, the action continues to happen, then a habit forms, and we keep giving ourselves to this, and then slavery forms because sin is a power. It's not just a choice. It's something that wants to enslave us, and then you put on top of all of this just a cycle of shame, so you feel such guilt and worthlessness, and just because you're like, how am I doing these things? How did I get here? And then you just become powerless to fight it. And then the enemy, in a sense, he has, if you will, just shaved your head and just destroyed your heart. And this is what sin does. Um, and if we, if we again, um, a huge way to fight any battle is to be clear about who you're actually fighting and what the weapons of their warfare are. And this is how, this is how the cycle, you just, you just think about anything in your life. You could basically run it through all of these and you could say, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. 
Tim Keller, as always, he says this. The next time you're crabby, the next time you're grumpy, the next time you're irritable, next time you're scared to death, really scared, next time you're in the pits, ask yourself, what am I telling myself would make me happy if only I had that? There's a if only at the bottom of this. Whatever you tell yourself about that, what you say to yourself, if only that, becomes your slave master. It destroys your will. It completely destroys your will. When you lie, lies necessitate other lies. Envy necessitates more envy. Racism necessitates more racist thoughts. You know that. Jealousy necessitates more jealous thoughts. Bitterness necessitates more bitter thoughts. In the beginning, when you first tell a lie, you still have an appetite for the truth, but not, it won't take long, but not for long, it won't take long. Sin is a power, and the things you crave become your slave masters because in your heart, those things burn with this idea, if only. Everything would be fine if only that. And that creates a suction in your life like a fire that says, I've got to have more approval. I've got to have more of this. I've got to have a better spouse. I've got to have, I've got to have, I've got to have. That's the reason why I'm unhappy. But the more you throw in there, the more it wants. Sin enslaves. We are all addicts. Not all addiction is sin, but all sin is addiction. If you're in the room today and you are a son or daughter of God, then that is your ultimate resting place. And there's new mercy every single morning. At the same time, every single day, you wake up in a war for your heart, for your family, for your life, that you meet resistance every single day from the enemy who wants to blind you and bind you from sin. And it starts in the smallest moments of compromise when you move away from a vision of consecration for your life and say, I, I, you know what, it's fine if I dabble in this. It's fine if I do this. And that compounds over time until one day, as some of you know personally, and we all know maybe someone else, where we wake up and we think, how on earth? Am I where I'm at? It's the cycle of sin. Another question I asked myself personally this week um, as I worked through the text was, how, how much did Samson leave on the table of what could have been in his life? How, like how much more could God have used him? How much more of his power could he have See, how much more could he have cried out for more than just physical water? How much more could he have cried out for actual help, for repentance, for repair, for battling his demons? How much more? And yet he doesn't ever. Now, yes and amen. I'll talk about it at the end. God uses all of these things for his glory. Praise be to God. But there are things that through your sin you leave on the table that God otherwise would do. And that can be a grievous thought, a hard thought, but it's something that we have to come to terms with. And as I say that, um, the wreckage of my life, the sin of my life, of your life, all, all of these things in God's economy, in God's kingdom, does not have the last and final word. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now that is a gospel verse right there, if you didn't know. That could be a great gospel Sunday verse right there. The hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Why? 
There's no, there's no real sense that Samson wises up. You, you may say, well, in, in his death, um, right, he finally does this act. Well, in his death, the reason that he puts his left hand and his right hand on the pillars to kill all the Philistines, and I quote him, he says, that I would have my, my eyes being gouged out avenged from these Philistines. Lord, would you give me power one more time to kill all of them for the wrong and evil done to me? So even then, he's still missing it. So why does the hair grow back? Because God is merciful. That's why, because God is not done with you even when you are done with him. The hair grows back because here's another truth. Yeah, the cycle of sin, sin is that, sin is this. There's a greater truth always, right? And it's this, God's, God's mercy is greater than your sinfulness. And what, what your blindness is and what your darkness is and what your sin is is an opportunity for God to be God and to show you the depth and the width and the height of his grace and, and his mercy. Why does the hair grow back? You know, I don't know, outside of God wants it to, because that's who God is. And his purpose and his plan for his people cannot be thwarted by sin. He will raise up a deliverer. He will raise up someone to save. And I, also this week I was thinking, you know, for probably, I don't know, a lot of us, some of us, but certainly for the people um, that were uh, around the time when Jesus was doing all of his ministry, I think a lot of them for the Roman Empire and for the evils done to them, a modern day for them, Philistines, I think what they wanted was not who they thought Jesus was going to be. They wanted someone like Samson or, or someone more like David without all of the moral ethical problems, but like someone that just exuded like strength and power and someone who comes on the scene and to Rome and to what they thought their real enemy was and just takes like the jawbone of a donkey and just kills Caesar. That's what they wanted. That's what they desired. And, and I'm, I'm going through this week, I'm like, what if that was what we got? Like, what if that was it? What if it was like, hey, really, the Bible is about people that are looking for a hero, and here's some Herculean hero-type people. Some are better than others. Some are not as good as others. Uh, but try and follow them. Try and find them. Just try and be like them, right? We're thankful that we don't. That's not true. But what if it was? Hey, just be like Samson, except not as bad. Hey, just be like David, except, right, try and keep your marriage in a better place. But just like, that, that's what a man looks like. That's what a woman should look like. Just try and, obviously there's a scale in the Old Testament. I, I acknowledge that. But how, how grateful that Jesus shows us another way to be and to live. Um, he's both savior and model, redeemer and example. Samson did what was right in his own eyes. Jesus only did what was right in the eyes of the Father. Samson was prohibited from touching dead bodies. Jesus, in a sense, only touched dead bodies to bring them to life. Samson was consumed by anger, by revenge, by emotional volatility. He's out of control. Jesus was driven by love. He was emotionally healthy. He was food of the spirit. He was self-controlled. You never see Jesus being anxious. He's, though he had much to be anxious about, just walking around, he's at peace. Why? Because he's connected to the Father. Bringing him glory brings you peace. Samson was driven by a lust towards women. Jesus was driven to protect and to empower women. 
When the men of Israel, I didn't even talk about this, but when the men of Israel asked Samson towards the end of the story why he's done the fox thing, why he's done all this, and when they ask him, why have you done all of this to them? Samson says, I only did to them what they did to me. And thankfully, Jesus doesn't say that. What if on the cross, Jesus says, you know what? I'm gonna do to you all you've done to me. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm gonna do for you something you can never do for me. Samson's dying prayer was to be avenged for the evil done to him, but Jesus' dying prayer was forgiveness for all of his enemies. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Imagine the power that forgiveness could have had in Samson's life. If only he had someone to break the power of the cycle of sin. You do. I do. In death, Samson stretched out his hands against two pillars to destroy his enemies. But Jesus stretched out his hands on the cross in love to save his enemies. Jesus is the true judge, the true deliverer. He's the true and better Samson. He's the one we really need. When John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and they're like, you can't be the one. Nothing's happened. You're healing some people. You're telling some crazy stories nobody can follow. We, this, this is the vision. This is the Messiah. We've waited so long for this. Like John the Baptist's disciples, right? Because they're, they're like Nazarite disciples. They're like, we're, we're expecting this. And then they're like, we thought you were the one. Should we expect someone else? Translation, we're disappointed in you. We want someone that takes the jawbone of a donkey and kills all the enemies. And Jesus is like, you do not want that. You do not want that. You think your biggest issue is Rome, or you think your biggest issue is this, or it's that. Your biggest issue is your heart. It's the cycle of sin. It's you are people, and we are people, and I'm a person who still does so often what is right in my own eyes and unleashes catastrophe. And Jesus says he gives us another power. So now our desire doesn't just have to be for sin. Our desire can be for the Lord, that the Holy Spirit comes into our life through faith and trust in Jesus, and now he reshapes our desire. So now what? We have the ability and the power to desire the kingdom of God, to desire his presence and his power. So now we have our intent can be different. Our actions can be different. The habits we form in our life, they can look different. So now we're not in slavery. We are in freedom. Now there's not shame. There's joy. The gospel reverses the cycle of sin. It does. Sin blinds you and it binds you. It leaves you in darkness. And what, what does Jesus do so much in his ministry? He goes around Galilee doing what? Opening the eyes of blind people. Giving them sight. Opening the eyes of their heart truly. Their eyes literally. We all know it's, it is, it, he recovers physical blindness as a sign of the age to come. But it's also your heart is blind. I want you to see me. I want you to see me. So I want to just encourage us as we wrap up uh, this morning is um, something that I, I think, um, I don't know how it'll land. I hope encouraging. It may also feel like, hey, okay, wow. <laughs> um, I, I really think that God is always inviting us again and again every single day to be people that are deeply consecrated to Jesus. 
that, that in our heart and our mind and our actions, that we are people that are consecrated to him because of who he is and because he's worthy. No one was more consecrated than Jesus. He never compromised one time in his life. Always governed by love for the Father, from the Father, of holiness, of love, of mercy. He never compromised. And he's looking for men and women every single day that will also say, Lord, imperfectly, yes, but we want to be people that are consecrated to you and to your word and to your heart. So how do you do that? Just a couple things. There's a thousand things. Most are being left out for time. But, but a couple things I just want to leave us with. And the first is this. I'm just going to ask you this question. Is, is that what you want? Before we get down the path of, okay, this means I've got to do my stuff. I've got to get involved. I've got to get in a group finally. I've got to figure out that sin stuff. Yeah, all that's going to come, all that. But like the first question is, do you want to be consecrated to the Lord? Do you want a life like that? A life that is dedicated to him, come what may, and the cost of that. And what has to be cut out so you can be more consecrated? Because if the answer to that is like, I don't really want that, then you can, we can tune out. Nothing else matters. If the desire is not, if desire is not there, then everything else is just going to feel like religious guilt or workspace righteousness or you trying harder and getting more exhausted and filled with more shame. And so one of the great gifts that God gives me time and again is, and even working on this message, I felt like, Lord, I am, I am like not, I should be more consecrated by the time I'm a lead pastor. <laughs> I should be more consecrated by the time I had three kids. I should, I, I should be more consecrated by now. You, you're growing up and you, like, you look at people that are now your age, you're like, I thought they were older. I thought when I got to this age, I just thought I would know more. I'm looking back, I'm like, I don't. Maybe they didn't either. Or maybe it's just me. It's not just you. And so what I, what I don't want you to feel like this morning, it's like, I've got to get my stuff together, right? No, that is, but to ask the question, in some sense, you're never going to be ready. In another sense, you have everything you need in Christ. And every single day, God is searching to and fro the earth, Chronicles says, to strengthen men and women whose hearts are fully consecrated to him. And we want to say, look no further. We are here. It's in this church. It's in my home. It's in my work. We're, we are not in a, in a culture of such deep compromise. We are going to be people of consecration people who are set apart with grace, with love, with humility, which means we have to get the sin out of our life, the distractions out of our life. Jesus says, gouge out your eye versus go to hell. He, he is serious about that. And you've also got to be like, make the choices that you need to cut out, whether it's sin or just for a lot of us, it's just distractions that keep us from the consecrated life, isn't it? It's busyness, isn't it? I don't have the margin to be consecrated. It's like, I, and so you have to do what works. I'm not up here to give you the 10 things because every one of you is different. I don't know what you're walking through. I can't be up here and be like, well, some of you got to cut that out. Some of you don't even deal with that. I don't know what it is. But I'll tell you again, to use me as an example, since I have the mic and it makes it easier for me to, to do it, okay? As you sit in whatever God is revealing to you, is I, years ago, I, multiple people asked me to do uh, fantasy football. Have you heard of this? It's insane. And I got, I got into it big time, okay? So this is not a, a beating on that. It's a, it's a beating on, on how I used it. And I just, I, I was, I, I had done it. I'd heard of it. Honestly, this is just, we're just keeping it really real. I felt like awesome to be invited to a league. I was like, I made it. 
I made it. I got invited to Fantasy Football League. I'm okay. I'm enough. Now, this was before. Well, it was right at the beginning of my time here. Uh, so not seven years ago. So I wish I could say 25 years ago. This is not that long ago. Not, not that old of a story. And I uh, just got down the path, started doing it. And Sunday mornings, you got to set your lineup, anyway, if you don't know. And so, it, you know, it was getting in the way of church. I, it just was. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, get, I'll figure out that announcement later. I've got to set my lineup because it'll be, the games will start by the time I'm done. And it just, it started to just, consume, just I mean, I researched. And, I mean, it was like, whoo. And pretty much a secret from everybody. How much it was taking stock in my mind. You, you put in whatever that thing is for you. Okay, hear me. And at one point, this is when I knew I had to make a change in my life. Otherwise, the power of God was going to evaporate from me. And uh, I, my quarterback was playing in Chicago at Soldier Field in probably like November. And I was like, how could I get an advantage over my opponent? And so I looked up the weather in Chicago for my fantasy football lever quarterback who was going to play there to figure out if I needed to bench him or play someone else because it was going to be snowy. He wouldn't have a big game and I could lose. Who was that? Who was who? <laughs> Ann Park? I believe it, honestly. <laughs> I know. You're like, this is the most, how could you? It's like, and I just want to say, we all have. We all do. I don't know what it is for you, but I, I had to cut that out of my life in order for there to be more consecration. And so this is not about a religious test. It's not about, it's not about that. I'm telling you, there are things in every person's life here you have to cut out if you want to receive more that God has for you. I don't know what it is, but I, what I want us to be is people that ask the question, what is it, Lord? In a guilt-free, shameless way. And instead of saying, well, how could you do that? We can all say, I've been there. I've done that. I was blind. And now I see. Now I see. The hair will grow back, guys. I had a guy after the first service who didn't have any hair say, how literal do you mean that? <laughs> and I was like, is that what you took from my message? <laughs> this is the most humbling career. <clears throat> he was kidding, I think. I was like, in the new earth, I probably won't recognize you. He was like, okay, great. And so, like, I don't know, God will redeem. If you're like, I'm more like Samson this morning than like Jesus, I just, the hair will grow back. You just gotta put yourself on the altar. You gotta quit being tired of, of, of being sick and tired of making excuses. God will work through your pain and your brokenness. If you're like, I'm much more like a man of Samson than the man I wanna be and how I treat my wife or my spouse or my girlfriend or any woman in my life, I, that's how I feel walking into church today. I just, you, today there's new mercy available for you to become the man God desires you to be by his power and not your own. You do not have to live in the cycle of sin. You can break out of it by his power. It's possible. And if it was not possible, we should all just go home because this is absolutely pointless. But it's possible. It is possible. Samson is in Hebrews 11. And it says that he's a man who learned weakness from his strength. Honestly, hard to beat that. I'm going to invite Emily to come up as we close. And we're going to um, just play for just a minute and sing a song. As, um, and I'll come out and, and, and finish us. Um, and I'm going to just... As we do that, um, I'm just going to close with reading from Joel. 
chapter 2. And I hope you hear it for you and for your family. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will turn, not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregations, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants, those we dedicated here this morning. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the pastors, the ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? And we want to be people who don't ever have to ask, answer that question because we can say God is here. He dwells among us. He gladly dwells among us. And so rend not your garments, rend your hearts to him again and again and again. There's more mercy and forgiveness and grace to be poured out, but he, you still have to come running to him and realize the whole time he's been running towards you. So Lord, we just consecrate this moment and we say against the, li against the lies of the enemy that for some people in this room have already said, not for me, we rebuke that. It is for you. It is for you. It is for you. It is for you. There's another way to be. There's another way to live. There's another way to be a man. There's another way to be free. There's another way to be whole. There's another way to be healed. Jesus, you give us the power that shows us not to lord it over people, but to serve and to give our lives for the sake of others as you gave your life for us. And so, Lord, we just release into this room all that you have for us. What sin needs to be confessed to be, Lord, give us the courage to not settle. God, what courage it takes maybe for some of us, but for every single one of us, we need more of you. Would you open the eyes of our heart, Lord, that we could see you more and say you're worthy, so we'll consecrate ourselves. You're worthy. We'll do whatever it takes, Lord, because we're yours and you're worthy. And all God's people said together, amen.